Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Weapon of Choice, Amilcar Cabral. Philosophers are often seen as uninvolved figures, literally sitting in an armchair as they develop their ambitious ideas and refine distinctions. While this reputation is not entirely unearned, the Africana tradition has given us more than a few counterexamples. We've by now met plenty of activist intellectuals, people who can credibly be called philosophers on the basis of their deep theoretical investigations, but who also put their freedom and even their lives on the line in the cause of liberation. It's hard to come up with a better example than Amilcar Cabral, whose philosophical musings went hand in hand with waging a war of independence, and who in January of 1973 made the ultimate sacrifice for his cause. Cabral's philosophical writings are inextricably bound up with his career as a revolutionary leader. Some of them were addressed to the soldiers under his direction and sought to build their morale and clarify for them the nature of their struggle. Others were delivered before international audiences and in part intended to attract political support. In the year 1972 alone, for instance, he made no fewer than 31 trips abroad for the sake of international diplomacy, from Asia to Europe to the United States. It is symbolic of this diplomat's importance as a philosopher, though, that his last trip to the United States, just a few months before his assassination, included meeting Amiri Baraka, who was at that time still in his black cultural nationalist phase. As we noted in episode 112, this part of Baraka's career was deeply inspired by Malana Karenga's philosophy of Kawaida, but came to an end a couple of years later when Baraka publicly repudiated black cultural nationalism and embraced instead a Marxist perspective focused on third world solidarity. As it turns out, we can find Baraka explicitly telling the New York Times that he was led to this shift in theoretical understanding by his study of Cabral's thought. Amilcar Cabral was named after a scourge of the Roman Empire, Hamilcar, the general of Carthage who fathered the more famous Hannibal. Cabral, himself an African destined to defy empire, was born in 1924 in what is now Guinea-Bissau, but then still the colony of Portuguese Guinea. This is not to be confused with the former French Guinea, also known as Guinea-Canakri after its capital city. This is the place usually called Guinea in English nowadays. Cabral's parents hailed from Cape Verde, a nearby archipelago of islands in the Atlantic Ocean that is also considered part of Lusophone Africa. Lusophone may sound like a musical instrument designed for use in free jazz, but it just means Portuguese speaking. After growing up in Cape Verde, Cabral spent time in Portugal itself, studying agricultural engineering in Lisbon beginning in 1945. Here he came into contact with Africans from other Portuguese colonies, such as Agostino Neto of Angola, who would go on to become Angola's first president. Cabral also discovered two philosophical movements that have loomed large in the story we've been telling in this podcast series. These two movements, Negritude and Marxism, greatly shaped his ideas, even as neither of them managed to claim his unqualified allegiance. But we should not discount the importance of his field of study, agronomics, informing him as both a political actor and a philosopher. You may recall that Africanus Horton of Sierra Leone, whom we covered in episode 55, published a book in 1867 about coastal West Africa, based on his survey of the climate, soil, and plants there. Similarly, after his studies, Cabral went back to Guinea in 1952, where he worked for the Overseas Ministry of Portugal in the Agricultural Service. He undertook an agricultural census and released his findings in 1953. 
These make for dry reading, no doubt, yet the seeds of his revolutionary thought were already planted here. He lamented the environmental impact of capitalism, as manifested, for instance, in the use of monocultures where huge swaths of the territory were used to grow just one crop, like groundnuts, with dire consequences for the population and the soil itself. And since the choice of crops cut across tribal boundaries and was often linked to socioeconomic status, Cabral's focus on agriculture started to lead him toward thinking of class rather than ethnicity as the main principle of division within Guinea. Even as he was working for the colonial government, Cabral began also working to undermine it. He tried to get the peasants to see that they were being exploited in ways they could not even perceive, as when the Portuguese worked to keep crop prices artificially low. When Cabral went to do consulting work as an agronomist in Angola, he participated in founding an organization that would serve as the basis for the MPLA, the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola. This is the party that ultimately secured Angola's independence and that still rules Angola today. The same year, 1956, while visiting the capital of Portuguese Guinea, which is Bissau, he and others, including his brother Luis Cabral, created the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, the PAIGC. This is the party through which he would pursue his life's work, that is, the liberation of both his homelands, Portuguese Guinea and Cape Verde. In 1959, a massacre of striking dock workers in Bissau showed the danger and limitations of mobilizing urban laborers. So, as the 1960s saw the struggle against colonialism turn violent, the PAIGC used guerrilla tactics to disrupt Portuguese control over rural areas. As they gained territory, the party demonstrated its own capacity for political leadership through the setup of infrastructure like schools, hospitals, and law courts. Unsurprisingly, given his intellectual training, Cabral used an agricultural metaphor for the struggle. Resistance was like scattering rice and hoping it will grow. In this process, he saw many aspects of traditional African society as less than helpful. As one scholar of his thought has commented, Cabral had no nostalgia for pre-capitalist communalism. He saw the top-down structures of some ethnic groups, like the Fula and Mandinka, as counterproductive because their chiefs were, in his view, often co-opted by the Portuguese colonizers. He also felt that traditional belief systems should be confronted with the power of modern science. One anecdote tells of how he challenged a village elder who was skeptical of the need for sending children to the new schools. Cabral pulled out a cigarette lighter and challenged the elder to explain the physics behind the flame it produced. The same theme is emphasized in his speeches to the rank and file of the PAIGC. Fear of lightning or magical totems like animals' horns is mere superstition, and the new society they were building was to be based on science and not imaginary things. This was just a part of the moral education he tried to give his followers, as he exhorted them to display good hygiene, keep their clothes neat and clean, and for goodness sake, turn up on time for ambushes against the colonial forces. This aspect of his thought may remind us of another late 19th century Africana thinker, Booker T. Washington, who struck a similar tone in his addresses to the students at Tuskegee. One can easily imagine Washington saying, we should avoid the superiority complex of those who know something and the inferiority complex of those who don't know. But in fact, these are the words of Cabral. Unlike Washington, though, Cabral was living after the Negritude movement. While in Lisbon as a student, Cabral encountered Senghor's landmark anthology of black poetry in French and was enraptured by it. He spoke of finding in this book, Things I Had Not Dreamed Of, Marvelous Poetry Written by Blacks from All Parts of the French World, poetry that speaks of Africa, of slaves, of men, of life, and of the aspirations of men. As attracted as Cabral was to Negritude, though, 
It was extremely important to him that African culture should not be celebrated uncritically. He was, in fact, open to the idea that European colonial powers might be credited with having given something worthwhile to the land they dominated. Science, for example, and the language used to describe it. As he once rhetorically asked, making reference to the language of the largest of Guinea-Bissau's ethnic groups, how do you say square root in Balanta? But this should not, of course, distract us from the deeply oppressive and malevolent nature of colonialism. Cabral made no bones about wanting to chase the Portuguese out of Guinea and Cape Verde, part of a broader effort to end colonialism in Africa as a whole. His business was resistance, which he defined as follows, to destroy one thing for the sake of constructing another thing. Like Nkrumah and others who wrote against colonialism and neocolonialism, Cabral understood economic exploitation and domination to be the core of the colonial enterprise, but he put a recognizably Marxist twist on this familiar accusation. The historical purpose of colonialism, insofar as it might have one, would be to revolutionize the economic and cultural landscape in its dominions. This would, on a traditional Marxist account, hasten progress toward the ultimate destination of a socialist utopia, which can emerge only once capitalism has transformed the modes of production. This is what was happening when colonial powers ushered scientific advances into a place like Guinea, advances that could then be put to good use in an independent nation after a successful revolution against those same powers. So there was a broader Marxist context for Cabral's apparently paradoxical admission that colonialism does have some good effects. Even more paradoxical is a point that Ryland Rabaka has noted in his book, Concepts of Cabralism. In a sense, colonialism did not go far enough. The dominating nations were reluctant to unleash the full forces of revolutionary transformation in the colonies. They knew they had a tiger by the tail and had no interest in making that tiger more vigorous. This is our metaphor, not Cabral's, as you can tell by the fact that it doesn't involve planting crops. The result was the stasis that Cabral labeled block development, which shows itself in low literacy rates, poor health care, and so on. It is unjust for the dominating power to inflict this condition on its colonial victims, just as it is unjust to prevent individuals from realizing their full potential. Guinea and Cape Verde had the special misfortune to be under the control of Portugal, which in Cabral's assessment was itself a backward country that could not have been a colonial power at all without the backing of its allies. In an amusing moment, he remarked that Portugal not only fails to produce airplanes, it doesn't even produce toy planes. So as he wrote elsewhere, if Portugal could have a civilizing influence on any people, she would be accomplishing a kind of miracle. Cabral once gave a speech entitled The Weapon of Theory, and the phrase sums him up pretty well. At first glance, the theory he was weaponizing looks like orthodox Marxism, but he was at pains to resist this interpretation in part for political reasons. He wanted to persuade countries like the United States to stop siding with Portugal, and being pigeonholed as a communist wasn't going to help with that. Furthermore, for him, pragmatism should trump ideological purity. Asked about his approach, he said, if you want to call it Marxism, you may. Am I a Marxist? Judge from what I do in practice. Labels don't concern us. Closer study of his writings also reveals the innovations he made within socialist thought. As Olofemi Taiwo has written, Cabral didn't just incorporate Marxist theory into his analyses, he extended and in profoundly original ways, transformed it and suited it for the African terrain. Cabral was provoked to these changes by a deficiency he perceived in Marxism, the problem of depicting the societies of pre-colonial Africa as being outside of any history worthy of the name. For Marxists, history is the story of class struggle, 
which was absent in the supposedly rudimentary nomadic and sedentary forms of life of the African past. Cabral, by contrast, stressed that Africa did have its own history, even if it had been interrupted by external domination. Colonialism, he said, made us leave our history and enter another history. In fact, he differed dramatically from Julius Nyerere, who we discussed in our last episode, because unlike Nyerere's claim in Ujamaa, the basis of African socialism, Cabral insisted that this earlier history of African life involved class differences. To make this point, Cabral pointed to the chief dominated cultures like the Fula. Furthermore, he believed that the complex African cultures that preceded colonialism had survived through its depredations. To destroy culture, one must more or less annihilate, or at least entirely uproot, the people who practice it, as was done to some Native Americans. Anything short of this will leave the original society in place, in however weakened a state, so that it can provide resources for anti-colonial struggle and for the new nation that emerges after independence. Thus, Cabral distanced himself from the idea of an African renaissance. What has never died has no need to be reborn. Combining these insights with the admission that some European ideas are good, like science, and some African ideas bad, like witchcraft, we arrive at Cabral's overall position on culture. The weapon of theory yields the weapon of choice. Africans should select the best of what both Africa and Europe had to offer. He thus wrote, While we liquidate the colonial culture and the negative aspects of our own culture in our spirit, in our midst we have to create a new culture, also based on our traditions, but respecting everything that the world has won today for serving people. Cabral liked to call the process of embracing the past without being uncritical about it re-Africanization, or a return to the source. This theme in his thought has been discussed by the Eritrean philosopher Sene Serekebaran. He speaks of how, for Cabral, the native past is not preserved intact, but cut and cast to fit the historic requirements of the struggle. It's an approach that could also be used by African Americans and other members of the diaspora. One can feel an affinity for traditional cultures without adopting every value found in those cultures, and without feeling like a heretic every time one adopts values of the dominant colonial culture. Cabral dug deeper into the roots of culture itself in a speech delivered in Syracuse, New York in 1970. Here he argued that culture grows out of the material and historical reality of its society. There is yet another botanical metaphor here, that underlying reality is like a plant whose flower is culture. But what does material reality mean here? The answer lies in what Cabral called the productive forces, which he argued are even more fundamental than class. In a passage bristling with the technical terminology of Marxism, he wrote, The definition of class and class struggle are themselves the result of the development of productive forces in conjunction with the system of ownership of the means of production. It therefore seems permissible to conclude that the level of productive forces, the essential determinant of the content and form of class struggle, is the true and permanent motive force of history. Cabral means that the degree of stratification in society results from such factors as sedentary versus nomadic lifestyle, focus on agriculture versus the raising of livestock, the availability of natural resources, and so on. To take a simple example, a society that involves large-scale harvesting of crops is liable to produce a class of peasants and a second class of people who are exploiting the labor of those peasants. Cultural norms are also relevant here and can be considered as part of the productive forces. For instance, do women help with the harvest or is it done only by men? Thus, class is not fundamental in Cabral's political theory, but it is still very important. He was urgently interested in the class structure of Guinea-Bissau because it determined the course of the liberatory struggle. 
Ultimately, for that struggle to succeed, all classes must commit to it, but the spark must be lit within one segment of society. Cabral felt that revolution cannot come directly from the working class and peasants because they lacked awareness of their own predicament. As for the traditional ruling class, in those parts of the population that had such a group, the rulers tended to become instruments of colonial power. Indeed, Cabral observed that this was one reason the colonizers could not utterly destroy a traditional culture, they needed to get the leaders within that culture to facilitate colonial domination. But if neither the lower classes nor the ruling class is going to launch revolution, who's left? The group that included Cabral himself, the functionaries of the colonial regime, for whom he borrowed the long-standing Marxist term petty bourgeoisie. Cabral's discussion of this class is the aspect of his thought most reminiscent of Fanon's psychological analysis of the colonized. Cabral describes the petty bourgeoisie, or westernized natives, as being torn between the system that employs them and the enduring cultural values of the wider population. They are far more assimilated than rural peasants and tend to see themselves as superior to those peasants, yet they remain connected to that class, whether they like it or not, for example through family ties. Furthermore, they suffer from daily indignities meted out by the condescending members of the colonizing elite. Since that elite will never accept them fully, their quest for identity can be resolved only by giving up on assimilation and embracing their native culture. It is not without a certain astonishment that they come to appreciate the richness of that culture. Now the member of the petty bourgeoisie is ready for the return to the source, which means literally going to the rural areas to live among the people and in due course to fight alongside them. Here, theory coincides with biography. Cabral was just such a functionary who spent years traveling amongst the people, bringing attention to the injustices they suffered and to the possibility of doing something about it. In another dramatic formulation, Cabral speaks of this decision on the part of the westernized native as a kind of class suicide. The petty bourgeoisie must abandon its relatively comfortable status and the assimilated values that have previously defined them in order to make common cause with the whole nation. Why, one might wonder, would they do this? Apart from the annoyance of those daily offenses to their pride, one reason might be a desire for genuine political power. As the initiators of the revolution, this is the class from which the leaders of the newly independent nation will be drawn. In a book on W.E.B. Du Bois, Fanon, and Cabral, Charles F. Peterson has observed that, with his analysis, Cabral shows the way out of the dilemma felt by Du Bois's talented tenth, though for Cabral we're probably talking about a lot less than 10% of the colonized population. They will escape their double consciousness by becoming the vanguard of a revolution that makes them no longer a vanguard, just particularly skilled members of the mass population instead of a group that stands outside of and looks down upon that population. It's a powerful idea, which has attracted attention from, among others, Maulana Karenga. In an essay on the topic, he describes class suicide as the way out of the dilemma in which the petty bourgeoisie must choose between allying with the oppressor or the people, retaining power through alliance with and service to the oppressor, or identifying with the interests and aspirations of the masses and seizing revolutionary power. Cabral was no doubt satisfied to see how his own life ratified his philosophical theories. Himself a member of the so-called petit bourgeoisie, he did lead a popular uprising that eventually succeeded in freeing Denis and Cape Verde. That did not come until 1974, after the Carnation Revolution toppled the government back in Portugal. The majority of African countries in existence today gained independence in the 1960s, so this was rather late. Portugal's tenacity in clinging to its colonial possessions may, ironically enough, 
have been a result of its weakness. It simply could not afford to lose them, especially Angola and Mozambique. And when the end of colonialism did come, it was too late for Cabral himself. A year earlier, he had been assassinated by opponents from within the PAIGC. It was a possibility he had foreseen, since he knew that the Portuguese were intriguing against him, and that he had many enemies, in part because of tensions within his own movement between the Cape Verdeans and the Ghanaians. In contemplating the prospect of his own death, Cabral was, well, philosophical. If I die tomorrow, he said, nothing will change in the ineluctable evolution of the fight of my people and their victory. We will have dozens, hundreds of Cabrals. It will be worth spending another episode in the company of this remarkable man and one of his leading exponents, the aforementioned Olofemi Taiwo. Actually, believe it or not, though we won't be joined by dozens or hundreds of Olofemi Taiwos, we will be joined by two of them. There are a couple of modern-day experts on Cabral by this name, one who works at Georgetown University, the other at Cornell University. I can easily imagine that they get tired of being confused with one another, but there will be no excuse for that after the next installment, when you will get two Femi Taiwos for the price of one. That price being one that Cabral would like the sound of, absolutely free, as always here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>